If I say the word crisis of faith, what does that mean to you? Crisis of faith. You can answer this morning. But one at a time. <laughs> Someone? Crisis of faith. Doubting God. Doubting God, okay? Unbelief. Unbelief. Feeling what? Feeling like you're falling away. What kinds of things contribute to a crisis of faith? What was that? Death of someone around us, absolutely. Suffering, Suffering. uh-huh. Sin, absolutely. I, I can think of times in Susie and I's lives where we have really struggled with the question, why? Why, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? And, and at that point, there's a, a little bit of a crisis of faith, a time where we wonder what, how God is working, if God is working. There are times that we're overwhelmed by life and circumstances, right? That we just don't feel God's presence. Anyone ever had that in their lives? Anyone willing to admit that in their lives? <laughs> um, sometimes it's our own fault through sin or other things. Sometimes it's circumstances that are beyond our control and it just feels like life is pressing in. Maybe we find ourselves feeling like we're in a box of circumstances that we have no way out and we don't even see how God is going to work to get us out of it. One of my professors used to call those times a dark night of the soul where we, we would be going through so much and our soul would be so grieved that it was hard to see God even working. And, and we struggle with that. We struggle with where is God? Dobson wrote a book, Where is God When God Doesn't Make Sense? And, and how do we make sense of a sovereign God in a world that has fallen and depraved and where things happen that are not from God and that are from sin and from evil. Today we, we come to several more names of God and the names today come out of that kind of event. Several of the, the people in the Old Testament as they're going through dark nights of the soul, as they're going through crises of faith, God reveals Himself in new ways to them with new names to help them through those situations. And so we want to look at those this morning as we continue our series on the names of God. Before we do, I'd like to, to remind ourselves, review just a little bit some of the names and show how these can be helpful. Remember the name Elohim? Do you remember what it meant? The powerful Creator God. I know you didn't expect to come for a test this morning. Elohim was the powerful Creator God. Adonai was the Lord and Master of all things. Yahweh last week was the self-existent, personal, and faithful God. And El Elyon was God Most High. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 38.15. I'll show you, show you just how this can help and make, make reading your Bible a little bit fun and interesting and um, just add a new layer of meaning. Psalm 38.15. give you a moment to get there. Because I want to read this together. When you look at Psalm 38.15, and I'm reading out of the ESV, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles right in the seats, under the seats right in front of you. You're welcome to use this morning. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take one as our gift to you and take that home and so you have a Bible. Psalm 38.15 says, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. And the psalmist is talking about a difficult time and that he's waiting on God to work and he's waiting for God's answer. But what's interesting is we actually see three different names of God in that verse. Did you catch that? Look at it again. 
But you owe, and do you see the spelling there? All caps. So what, what do we know when it's all caps? It's Yahweh. But you owe Yahweh, but for you owe Yahweh do I wait. It is you, O Lord, and that one is Adonai, because it's the, the uppercase L and the lowercase O-R-D. O Adonai, my Elohim, who will answer. And that's, that's sort of fun. I, I, I like doing that. I'm like, okay, I can see the names of God here. But what can be really helpful in your study is then to read it again, but to put in the definition of those names. Let me read it again with those definitions. But for you, O Yahweh, the self-existent, personal, faithful Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Master of all things, my powerful Creator God, who will answer. Oh, I love that. Now when I'm talking about who will answer, I'm talking about the Master of all things, the powerful Creator God. Can He answer? Absolutely. When, it, when we say, but for you, O Lord, do I wait, O Yahweh, the, the personal God who gave us His name so we would know Him and know His presence, all of that's packed into one little verse. That's what happens when we begin to understand the names of God. But for you, O Yahweh, the self-existent, personal, faithful Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Master of all things, my powerful Creator God, who will answer. So we want to continue studying the names of God and dig into Hopefully three more names today to, to get through them before 2020. We have to move pretty quickly. And so we'll be doing several of them a day. Flip back to Genesis 16. Genesis 16. The first name of God and, and really encounter with someone who's just going through some serious struggles is in Genesis 16. And it's the God who sees. El Roi. And, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit, but I want to start with the story, start with Genesis so we can understand the background because the stories help us understand the names. If you remember, God has already met at this point with Abram and He's given him a promise, right? I will make you a great nation. I will give you descendants that outnumber the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky. And so that's, I can see Abram thinking, this is great. And that's what everyone desired then. That was sort of the, the status if you had a, a lot of descendants. And God, God has promised that He would have a lot of descendants. Elohim has. But then the crisis of faith happens. Then life happens. And He and Sarai get a little older. And get a little older and no children. And they get a little older and no children. And He needs a son for this promise to be true. And in chapter 15, Abram and God are talking again and God's reaffirming the promise. And, and Abram says, well, you know what, God? I don't have any kids. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we're getting a little older and there's a certain age where kids just aren't going to happen anymore. And so why don't we take Eliezer from my household? Not, not my son, but you know, related to me. Why don't we take him? And that can be who your promise is fulfilled through. What's Abram doing? It's helping God, right? Helping God fulfill God's promises. Giving God an out just in case God wasn't able to do what He said. And God says, no. No, it will be your Son that I build my nation through. So then we come to chapter 16. A little bit more time has passed. Abram is about 86 at this point. And Sarai is about 77. And so, so we're getting up there and still no children. And so still this question is, God, how 
are you going to accomplish this? And we pick it up in chapter 16, and, and they're getting older, and Sarai has a suggestion this time. Abram had his suggestion. And Sarai suggests, you know what? I, I'm probably too old at this point to have children. Why don't you take my handmaiden, my servant, and, and Abram, you go in with her, and she can become your wife in my place. And so Abram would sleep with her, and then she would get pregnant, and then that baby under cultural tradition, this was normal under their culture, that baby would become the property of Sarai. And so Abram, she, she goes to Abram, and, and Abram says, oh, okay, sure. And, and goes in, and, and um, Hagar, excuse me, Hagar gets pregnant. And we pick that up in chapter 16. We're, we're in the middle of 16 there. And verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So do you get what's happening here? Abram goes into Hagar. She gets pregnant. And then Hagar's looking at Sarai and like, I can have children. You can't. And that again was, was so important in the culture of the time that a woman and a couple be able to have children. And so Hagar starts to rub it in her face a little bit. And so what does Sarah do? If you go, if you go on to verse 5, And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. It's your fault, Abram. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Or may Yahweh judge between you and me. We're not going to get into her blaming Abram and all that stuff because we need to get further in the story. But Abram said to Sarai, and and he really sort of backs off and is passive here. But Abram said to Sarai, hey, behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So that's the setup of of the story, okay? You get it so far? Hagar is, is now pregnant, throws it in Sarai's face a little bit. Sarai says, What's going on? She gets permission to treat her however we want. And we don't know the details except she was treated harshly enough that she had to run away. And we know from, from the context a little bit later, she's running south to Egypt. That's where she's from. And she's going to go home. She's done. Situation that was partially her fault, partially Sarai's fault. Um, they, they both were in the wrong here. But she's off. So we pick it up in verse 7. The angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of Yahweh also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. You are a God of seeing. And the words she uses there are El Roi, the, the, the name of God that we're studying now. You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly here I have seen Him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi, Roi, 
It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. We come across this story and we see Hagar in a dark night of the soul, right? She's done. Circumstances. She's now pregnant. She's alone. She's on her way home. Doesn't know what to do. And God meets her in the wilderness. In the middle of the darkness. And so we see the name El Roi. And if you remember El, what's that from? Elohim. Someone said it. So whenever you see El, think God Almighty or or God the Mighty One. And the, the Mighty God who created all things. And then the second part of that, Roi, is the, the, the idea of to see or to understand. It would be like if one of you was going through something like, Joe, you hurt your hand. And if I was to say, you know, I see, I understand the pain you're going through. That must be really tough, especially with the job of typing, things like that. That process of understanding and coming into that, that's what this word to see means. It also meant to watch over. When you, when you think to see over literally is what it, it meant. To see over someone. When I'm watching over my kids, that implies certain things, right? You know, this morning Susie's in nursery, so I was watching my kids back there. That implies that they're with me. That I know what they're doing. That they're not swinging from the lights during worship or something like that. There's certain activities that watching over them means. And, and all of that's part of this verb, roi, to see or to watch over. And Hagar, when she felt completely alone, realized God was still there. God still understood. God still saw what she was going through, even if she didn't feel it, because it wasn't about her feelings. It was about the truth that God is everywhere. And God knows and understands. What an incredible name to think of for God. Especially as we go through times to know that He is the Mighty One who sees and understands. We see in, in this, this word, in this name, a combination of two of His attributes. Remember, He's all of His attributes at one time. We see His omnipresence. He is everywhere. And we see His love. Because what she's saying isn't this God who sees and sort of laughs at your calamity. It's a God that sees and enters your situation that cares. Amazing story. Just it's interesting. Did you catch the name of her son? Ishmael. What do you see at the end of Ishmael? A little bit of lecture here. L, right? And so this is God does something. His name means God does something. The first part of it, Ishmael, means to listen or to hear. And so the name of her son was God listens. God has heard me. And you see that in, in the angels saying, you will bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. What an amazing thing to remember that God sees and He listens to anything you and I might be going through. And this is really a, a, such a comforting name for me because there are times that I don't see God at work and I don't understand His plans and I don't understand what He's doing. But last week we learned He is still sovereign. But now I know He is also still here. And He is with me. He knew the pain that Hagar was in. 
And he was willing to come and take care of her in that situation. A couple of things in understanding the name. God sees our difficult situations and is looking after us. She was running from a difficult situation, partially of her own making. Uh, but, but doesn't God still pursue us when we sin? And when we get in situations that are of our own making, God still sees. And He still is asking us to turn to Him. Interesting what He told her to do. Did you catch that earlier on? He said, go back. Go back and submit. Do the right thing. Even when you feel like you're in the darkest spot, still do the right thing. Even if you don't understand why, trust Me because I am the God who sees and will take care of you. A couple of other things as we think through this name. God knows everything about us. And pulling in some other scriptural principles here, God knows or He sees everything about us. Nothing is hidden from God. The hairs on my head are not hidden from God. How many have turned gray or are not hidden from God? Our circumstances, our past, our present and future, nothing is out of God's purvey. He sees it all. I'd like to just read some verses from Psalm 139. And if you're questioning God's presence in your life, take some time this week to read the whole chapter, Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Oh, that's amazing. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. Proverbs 5.21 says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The next point in your notes sort of goes, goes a step deeper. God sees even the deepest recesses of our hearts. He sees even the recesses of our heart. Our thoughts, our minds, everything that's there. The good, the bad, the ugly. Psalm 44.21 Would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. We know that Hagar did go back. And she responded to the God who sees, who is watching out for her. And she went back, and another 14 years there, Isaac is born. And again, Abraham and Sarah send Hagar away, but God is still watching over her. And God fulfilled His promises to her. What are some of the implications, the applications, as we study El Roi, the God who sees? First one I have there is take comfort and strength from the fact that in the middle of our difficulties, our deepest, darkest difficulties, El Roi sees our trials and is watching over us. God 
always shows up. And what I've experienced is in the middle of, of discouragement and depression and our deepest struggles, those are the times where we question whether God even will show up. And Satan is just pounding us, you're alone, God has abandoned you, where is he? Your sovereign God isn't giving you everything you want. Just think about that statement for a minute. And Satan's lies try to make us feel like because God hasn't done what I want Him to do, He has abandoned me. El Roi, the God who sees, is always with us. He always sees. He doesn't always work the way we expect Him to, but He always sees and is always taking care of us. We are never alone. Isn't that amazing? That truth, that comfort... Second implication there is the God who sees, and this is the other side of this, should make us pause and evaluate our actions for the just God is seeing all we do. The just God is seeing all we do. You know, you, you go anywhere public now and you see little stickers on the doors you walk in, right? You are under surveillance. Smile, you're on camera. You know, it, just everywhere you go. It's <coughs> Why do they put those signs up? So that you know, but what was that? To affect, to affect our behavior. Because if I know someone is watching, maybe I won't steal that TV or whatever it is. And, and so that's, that's their rationale for doing that is someone's watching you, big brother's watching you, so be careful how you act. But in, in the same way, but, but this is a loving God, so not this sterile cold camera, but in the same way, the God who sees should remind us God is seeing everything you and I do. And that should modify my behavior. That should remind me to do all things for the glory of God. Because He is with me and He sees. Your Bibles are already open to to Genesis 16. The next name of God actually comes from the next verse in in 17. Because we're still dealing with the situation. And so, the whole thing with Ishmael didn't work out. Right? And so Abram and Sarai, do they still have their offspring? No, they're still struggling with will God provide... Will he accomplish what he, what he has said he will accomplish? Read verse 1 of chapter 17 of Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, so we're fast forwarding a little bit ahead, he's 99, Sarah is 90, and, and age doesn't help the process of having children. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. This is the first time this name is used from God. I am God Almighty. And you've probably heard the the Hebrew for this, El Shaddai is His name here. The Almighty, all-sufficient God. And so in the middle of of Abram not knowing if God will will act, not knowing if this promise will be fulfilled, God comes to him and says, I am God Almighty. The all-sufficient God. This is who I am. You can trust Me. He says, walk before Me and be blameless that I may make My covenant between Me and you and may multiply you greatly. And He brings up the multiply again. He brings up the promise. And He says, El Shaddai is how you know this will be true. I love the the first part of verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. Boom! Because he saw something new about God. El Shaddai, the Almighty, all-sufficient God. 
And again, El there has to do with mighty Creator, mighty One, strength and awesome power. And so what does Shaddai mean? And there's been a lot of discussion because if Shaddai just means Almighty again, then it's sort of redundant. But Shaddai has several different aspects to it. And this helps us understand because whenever you see the word Almighty used of God in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word Shaddai. And so to to understand this is, is huge. The first part of Shaddai is that it does mean almighty or omnipotent. It it was possibly related to a phrase they had, God the mountain one. And when you think of mountains, what do you think of? Strength. Stability. John, you were just in the mountains. We were talking about it. I was a little drooling over some of your pictures. Um, Why do mountains move us that way? It's the grandeur, the, the amazement of these huge Amazing structures of, of rock. And so when we think of God, the mountain God, we're thinking of His strength. That He is omnipotent. That He is strong and able to deliver. That nothing is impossible with God. We sang about that this morning. Nothing is impossible with God. But what's interesting is Shaddai means more than that. And that's where we go with, with the Lord Almighty or God Almighty. But Shaddai is just such a rich word. It has so much more because it also means all-sufficient. And this is the second aspect of it. The, the word for Shaddai comes from two Hebrew words, shad and die. And shad had to do with the nourishment or the sustenance that a baby would get from their mother's breast. You think, well, that doesn't sound like power. To that child, is it power? If they die without it? It is a life-giving power. And so Shad has this idea of a mother's breast and the supply that comes from it. Dime it sufficient. That this is more than enough. And we sang enough this morning. And so when we think of El Shaddai, He is the Mighty One who will provide everything you need. Without fail, will give you sustenance, will supply your needs, will give us what we need in life. Not necessarily what we want, but what we need. In fact, when Shaddai was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, a copy of the Old Testament translated into Greek, always the word that was used was all-sufficient. All-sufficient. And so it, it was more this idea that He is enough for anything we need. And so we have a God who knows our need, who who sees and who hears and is strong and able to deliver. What if God was only the God who sees and he wasn't almighty? Then you'd really you'd have a really compassionate, empathetic God that watches you fall apart. It would mean nothing, right? But praise God, and why I love these two names together is we have a God who sees and understands everything we go through, and is able and and capable to do everything that we need. One author said, strong enough to help and sensitive enough to care. I appreciate that. See, God is the mighty one who satisfies and supplies the almighty, all-sufficient God. And so here we have God revealing this name to Abram who's questioning the the covenant, questioning whether this will ever happen. And God says, I am El Shaddai. I am mighty enough and I care enough and I'm capable to do what's needed here. 
And in the middle of Abram's crisis of faith, El Shaddai is the comfort. Now, again, there was still some faith that had to happen, some response. God says, walk before me and be blameless. Look down to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And this is the point where God changes both of their names again to remind them of His work. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. King of pe- kings of people shall come from her. And in verse 17, we get an insight that Abraham's still struggling with this. Abraham, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Don't do that when God says He's going to do something. But he fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He still has his plans, right? You know what? God, I know you promised this. It's really not going to happen. Ishmael's 13, 14 years old now. Take him. We, we've got this covered. God said, no. I, I, I would picture Aslan's voice there. No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And he goes on to talk about Ishmael and his promise to Ishmael. So Abram's struggling. Abraham's struggling with faith here. And this is why God reveals Himself as El Shaddai. The God who can do the impossible and will meet every need and provide. It's interesting because El Shaddai became the primary name for the patriarchs. And we see that. I'll just read a couple verses later in Genesis. In Genesis 28, 3-4, Isaac is now talking. So Isaac's been born. Isaac now has a son, Jacob. And what he passes on to his son, God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Again, he's talking about the abundance, the provision of God um, through El Shaddai. That you may become a company of peoples. May He give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land and your sojournings that God gave to Abram. And so Isaac passes the name on to Jacob. Fast forward. Jacob and his kids. Chapter 35, verse 11. And Jacob's now passing on the name. Or no, actually 35, 11 is God speaking to Jacob. And in 49, Jacob will be passing on the name. But in 35, and God, or Elohim, said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And he goes on and and renews the promise. And it's interesting because El Shaddai keeps being used where, where people are doubting whether God will do what He said. Village, God will do what He said. He is El Shaddai. We can trust Him. He will provide. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to compromise. God is God Almighty. The All-Sufficient One. In 49.25, Jacob is blessing his sons, passing on the name by Elohim of your Father who will help you, by Shaddai who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. So we see over and over this name being passed on as a rock that people were clinging to. It's the same rock we need to cling to today. 
couple points under understanding this name. Um, I mentioned the primary name for God was, was El Shaddai with the patriarchs. But then the next one, the almighty, all-sufficient El Shaddai protects. And so think about this. If He's all-sufficient, meets every need that we have, and He's able to do the impossible, isn't that where you'd run in trouble? But so many times when, when life is pressing in on us, we blame God instead of running to God. And we need to be blaming Satan and evil and running to God under His shelter and His care. Psalm 91, 1 and 2. It's a great verse to memorize on this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, that's El Elyon from last week, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, the Shaddai. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. El Shaddai is all-powerful. He's all-sufficient. And we can run to Him in trouble. He will protect. The other side of this as well, though, the Almighty, all-sufficient El Shaddai judges the wicked. Now in a case where we're running to Him and He's protecting, the fact that He's a just God, there's a lot of comfort in that, isn't it? I don't have to get revenge. I don't have to defend myself. God Almighty is going to do it. And in Isaiah 13, verse 16, as well as Joel 1, wait for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. And he's talking to people that have been oppressed. He says, wait on God to handle it. He will handle it. His justice will come. El Shaddai is used 48 times in the Old Testament. 31 of those are in Job, where Job is struggling with El Shaddai, isn't he? Job is struggling with why and that dark night of the soul when everything has been taken from him. And God says, I am the God who will meet all your needs. Even if you don't understand what is going on, trust me and rely on me. In the New Testament, we see um, the Almighty used several times. Nine, times. nine of those times are in Revelation. And usually in the sense of God's justice, His judgment. And the words that we have in, in the New Testament really are, are focused in on the Almighty is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. Verses like Revelation 15.3 And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are Your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are Your ways, O King of the nations. So what do we do with that? What do we do with, with understanding? How does this affect us, this almighty, all-sufficient God? And the first application there is really probably the most obvious. God is sufficient for you. Trust Him and enjoy His peace. God is sufficient for you. And when we stop trying to grab and change circumstances so that our needs are met and when we stop trying to sort of reorder our lives and leave God out of it and say, what does God want? Then we can have true peace. Because there is no end to the worry that comes from chasing our own dreams and chasing our own desires. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, and God is able. We sang God is able this morning. 
has to do with El Shaddai. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound to every good work. And, and it's a really interesting principle there because he's saying if God is able to supply everything you need, if He's really El Shaddai, then that frees you up to not worry about it and use your time and use your energy and use your resources to serve Him. Because now I don't have to spend my time hoping to make this perfect world for myself. We can't. Ever tried? Just seems like things keep falling apart, right? Susie and I used to laugh because whenever we'd get some money in savings, we could guarantee something would happen. Car would break, medical expenses. I just guaranteed, like clockwork, even, even last year we had a little bit of savings. We're like, okay, God, what, what's going to happen? And sure enough, because God knows we would trust ourselves. And we would stop looking and trusting Him so much if all of our our needs were taken care of in my mind, in my brain. Do what God is calling you to do and then see how He provides. He is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, three chapters later, verses 9 and 10, But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of My weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because of El Shaddai. Isn't that good to know that He's the God who sees and the God who is able? And, and just a point of caution here. I, I've seen this taken to an extreme where God becomes a magic genie. God can do anything, and so I'm going to ask for anything. And, and I get my three wishes or, or 70, you know, whatever perfect number. No. God is still most high. All the names work together. And as most high, he gets to set the agenda. He gets to set the plans. He is sovereign over all. And so when we come to him as El Shaddai, he is sufficient for his plans in my life. And really, would I want anything else? When we realize God is El Shaddai and sufficient and almighty, our problems shrink. Not that the circumstances shrink, but our problems shrink, don't they? One speaker said, the bigger our God, the smaller our problems. And I love that. Because if God isn't sufficient and able, then my problems are huge. And I don't know how it's going to be resolved. But if God is omnipotent and El Shaddai... I don't really have much to worry about. I wrote, follow the almighty, all-sufficient God and just stop worrying. Stop it. He is sufficient. Second application there. And this one's hard. Hard for me. Maybe it's not hard for you. Surrender your control to the almighty, all-sufficient God. Stop trying to fix everything our own way. Walk with Him. Did you catch what God said to Abram in verse 1? And He said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before Me and be blameless. This wasn't just you get to do everything you want and then I, I come in and save the day. He says, walk before Me. Walk with Me in relationship with Me. Be blameless. 
Run from sin. Follow Me. Be in relationship with Me. That walking with God is the surrendering to God and realizing I will depend on Him. See, to realize God is sufficient, to really understand that, I believe we have to realize we are not. As long as I think I'm sufficient for my concerns, I will fail to appreciate how incredibly great God is. Where is your sufficiency this morning? Where is your trust for the future? Where is your trust for the rest of the day? Where is your trust for getting out of the situation you're in? Those are questions that help us understand whether we've surrendered our control to the almighty, all-sufficient God. Third application there. We might not know why things are happening, and we just don't need to know. Think of the story of Job, where El Shaddai is found most in the Old Testament. God is still El Shaddai. He is still the God who sees. He is still El Elyon, the Most High, who is sovereign. He is working. He might even be using you to work in someone else's life. We just don't know. We don't know why our circumstances are here, and we don't need to know because it's about who is in control of those circumstances. Fourth application there. It's what I already mentioned in Genesis 71. We're to separate ourselves from sin. He is all-sufficient and He is judge. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18, we see those two concepts put together. Therefore, go out from their midst. He's talking about the world. Go out from the world. Be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so he says, live a blameless life. Separate yourself from sin because I am the Lord Almighty. God is the God who sees and understands and He's the God who can do something about it, El Shaddai. The powerful, all-sufficient God. The third name today, and this one isn't used as often, but I want to end with this one, is God is judge. Yahweh Shaphat. If you just turn over one more chapter, just working our way through Genesis, isn't it just amazing how God just reveals more and more of Himself on every page? And the story behind this, Genesis 18, we see that Lot has now in Sodom and Gomorrah fallen into sin and God, has, he's had it with Sodom. The time has come for him to eliminate Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the earth, for him to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram now, remember Abram now is bargaining with God. What if there's 50 people that believe in you? Will you save the city? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? He goes down the list. And we catch in the middle of that Abraham uses a new name for God. Genesis 18, starting at verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. You Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Abraham uses a new name for God. Judge of all the earth. And he's using it to appeal that you are a just and righteous God. Is God just? Absolutely. We talked about that with the attributes of God. And ironically, the fact that He's just and righteous is what is making Him destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
A just God cannot tolerate sin and leave it unpunished. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God is judge, Yahweh Shaphat. Shaphat means a ruler, one who decides. One author said it really encompassed a lot of our, for, our, our, our um, houses of government to act as lawgiver, judge, and governor. All in one. That was what this word meant, that Yahweh is judge. And we know a couple things. Interesting the phrase Abraham used, judge over all the earth. And one of the points there is that Yahweh is judge over all. If He's most high, He's judge over all. Psalm 94.2, Rise up, O judge of the earth. The same phrase, the same name used. Repay to the proud what they deserve. In Hebrews 12.23, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In Judges 11.27, the name Yahweh Shaphat is used. The Lord, the judge. Yahweh is judge over all. And there's comfort in that. There's justice in that. And there's a little fear in that. Isn't there? Because God also sees all. You you see these same two themes running through all of these names this morning. See, the second point there is if we understand that Yahweh is, is judge, God is just and righteous in His decisions. He doesn't play favorites. He is just and righteous in all His decisions. If we sin, we will be held accountable for that sin. In fact, we know that all sinners, because because He is a just and righteous God, that all sinners deserve a punishment for that sin. Does that make sense? Imagine a parent who never punished or disciplined their child. They're teaching them that evil is good. They're, 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 They're not training them. They're not discipling them. And so God, He is just and righteous in His decisions, and that should make us pause because that means He's just and righteous over the things I do. We like it when He's just and righteous over the things you do. And especially people who we don't like. Praise God, He's just and righteous. Go get Him, God! God is just and righteous over all, including me. And so what this means is that I deserve to be punished for my sin. And a sin against an infinite God deserve, not only deserves, it requires under justice an infinite punishment. And so that's why we read in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the infinite punishment because God is judge. Because He is just. But the verse doesn't end there. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you, if you read through the implications, and I'll just talk through them, God is just. He is judge. He will hold us accountable for our sins. But because He is the God who sees and he, His El Shaddai, He has sent His Son to take the price for us. To bear the penalty. His justice requires payment. But because He loves you and He loves me, He said, so I'm going to send my son to die on the cross and take that payment for you. And it shows that he is just and that he is loving. 
The question this morning is, do we believe God is judge? Do we believe He's truly going to call into account all things that happen? And if we do, if there's someone here this morning that has never come to Christ and accepted that gift of salvation, accepted that gift of His Son, that is the only way that that we can receive salvation is through this just God's sacrifice. And I implore you, come to Christ today because God is judge and because He has made payment for your sins. And He's offered it freely as a gift and said, if you will believe in Me and follow Me and repent of your sins, this gift of salvation is yours and the just God will count what Jesus did on the cross as payment for your sins. Amen? What an incredible gift. If you've never done that this morning, now's the time to believe in Jesus Christ. Because God is judge. But He's also the God who sees. And He's also El Shaddai, the Almighty, All-Powerful, All-Sufficient One. Jesus was His sufficiency for our sin. See how it all works together? Come to Christ today. Talk to me afterwards if you're at that point of saying, I want to know more about Jesus Christ, about how to follow Him. I'll hang out for a few minutes up here. I'd love to talk. For those that have accepted Christ, I know most of you have. What an incredible reminder of a just God who sees and it's sufficient for all of our darkness, for all of our sin, for everything we go through. Trust Him. He will never let you down. Oh, Yahweh, we come to you in prayer. And I praise you that you are the God who sees, has promised we are never alone. You understand even the things we don't think another soul on this planet will understand. And Lord, you not only understand, but you can do something about it because you are almighty and all-sufficient. You say, let me supply your needs. Let me provide for you. Help us to trust you, God to stop spending all of our energy trying to trust ourselves and to spend our energy trying to figure out how we can glorify you more. And Lord, I, I praise you that you are a judge. I don't always like it, but I'd rather you be a just God. And I praise you for that. And I pray that there, if there's anyone here that has never turned to you and accepted the sacrifice of your son on that cross, that today would be that day. Yahweh, thank you for your names. But they remind us of who you are. We need those reminders, God. In Jesus' name.